Welcome to EMDR Chat with Kurt and Michelle. I'm Dr. Curtis Roundson. And I'm Dr. Michelle Gottlieb, and we're so excited that you're here with us. So last time we talked, we started talking kind of more generally about dissociation. Can you even do EMDR therapy with dissociation? The answer, the short answer is yes, you can. But listen to our previous podcast, and we'll give you more information. This time, we're going to talk more specifically about adaptations that you may not necessarily have to, but may need to do if you're dealing with people who dissociate. Now, let's just clarify this. Uh, there, are, as we talked about last time, there's a whole continuum of dissociation. All of us dissociate, completely normal. We're not talking about that normal dissociation within, you know, if we're reprocessing doing EMDR therapy and you've got someone within that normal continuum, you just keep on going. Not a big deal. We're talking about people at the end of the continuum, people who have dissociative disorders. These are some adaptations that we may or may not need to use. And Michelle, I just want to add, you know, one of the things you see in media, you often see the portrayal of uh, patients who have dissociative identity disorders or ego states disorders. And they're usually portrayed in a rather pathological, almost criminal uh, crazy kind of way. And that's fictionalized uh, Hollywood and movie industry. The truth is, uh, most of these individuals, when you see them, you're, you're not going to know that they have an identity, a social, a dissociative identity disorder at all, or uh, have ego states. Uh, these are not people who uh, you know, split in two. Originally, the word schizophrenia meant split mind. And many people in the beginning thought people suffering from dissociative disorders were schizophrenic and they were labeled psychotic and dissociative disorders is not a psychotic disorder at all. I just want to lay that out. And any of you watching the, the movies and TV shows about people that have a dissociative disorder, please know that it's being fictionalized and that's not how real individuals who have this disorder act. I'm glad you said that because Hollywood always does such a good job portraying, well, everything, falling in love, relationships, dissociation, all of it. They just do a great job. Okay. So, but let's assume again that you've got someone who is uh, dissociative disorder, not otherwise specified, DDNOS or DID, because again, that's not as uncommon as we used to think. So these are some possible adaptations you may need to do. You may need to create a really good container. This is before you start doing the reprocessing, before you do that deep dive into actually desensitization. You can do a real uh, 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 sorry, container that you can touch and hold, something concrete, or you can do it imaginatively. Either one can work really well. And then once you've got it set up, then you can have them use it at the end of the session. And my containers, which my containers tend to be imaginative rather than something real in front of them, um, I always have uh, a mail slot in mine so that they can continue to send things to the container during the week as a, con as a container exercise they get to use all week long. And I just want to step just half a step back and say that sometimes even before containers are possible, with the more severe cases of DID, uh, you got to find out who's in there. And so that's an investigation. That's a working 
together with the parts that you're aware of to find out who's inside and kind of mapping out who's present, who's willing to cooperate, who they're aware of if they are, and others that they may not be aware of. So that takes time, and each part in DID may need its very own container. That's one of the differences. Each part may need its own container. And doing that takes time. EMDR does not run through uh, dissociative disorders personalities in one session. I've heard people claim that they can deal with DID in seven, eight sessions and integrate all the parts. Well, first of all, integration may not be the goal of every patient that has DID, and we need to gain trust. So I want you to imagine something. When one person comes into your office and you're trying to build rapport with that person, that's you and them. Now imagine that that one person that comes in, that one body, let's just make up a number, has eight personalities. You're having to deal with a rapport, build a rapport with eight personalities. That's a different kind of therapeutic interaction. So as we build on that, you know, Kurt said each alter may need their own container. And again, this also works for uh, DDNOS where they have parts, not alters, they're not separate identities. Um, they may need their own container, but they also may need, each of them may need their own safe, calm place. They may each all need their own resources. I worked with a woman who has multiple parts. She's not DID. She's very close, but she's not DID. And we did a safe, calm place for each one of her parts. Her parts tend to be by ages. So her young parts got their own safe, calm place. Their older parts got a safe, calm place. So be aware of that, too, that each part is going to need, probably, their own safe, calm place. Yes. And I also want to talk about the what we many of us today call the EMDR conference room or table. I got to give a shout out to Dr. Sandra Polson, one of the early, early adventurers in EMDR therapy and addressing and adapting EMDR therapy to ego states disorders. And Sandra used George Frazier's dissociative table. It's a way of getting to know who's all there and imagine a, a table and they create the size and the shape and they're parts sitting around the table, parts of the person. It could be ego state parts, parts, or it could be alter personalities and dissociative identity disorder. And they each have a place around the table where they can sit together. That takes time, first of all, to find out who's all in there. And that's part of the rapport building also. But structuring therapy. One of the things that I I teach about dealing with severe dissociative disorders is that we, the clinician, often have to impose on the outside and order a ritual, if you will, of sameness. It creates a sameness from the outside that is not always present on the inside. Richard Clough, a great psychiatrist who was a pioneer in the treatment of multiple personality disorders, we used to call it, was once, once asked how he was able to help these traumatized people. And his comment was, I bore them to health. And what he meant is that he became, you know, almost boringly the same in terms of 
how he began a session, how he ended the session with each patient, where they sat, what they did, like the container exercises Michelle's talking about, doing it in a way that's the same. So we impose from the outside a kind of structure that may not exist on the inside that we can work with. And continue on with the, whether you call it conference table, conference room, I've heard different things. Um, each part gets to decide what does their chair look like? What does the table look like? Are they sitting in the room? Or are they zooming in? Or do they just have the sounds? They can't see the picture. Because everyone has to feel comfortable and safe. And what you're doing here is creating a co-consciousness. I kind of look at parts or DID work kind of like family therapy. We want everyone to be able to communicate well and to have discussions about whatever the issues are and no one uh, takes over. So that's what we're trying to build here. Let every part be able to be heard and seen. Um, and then it, one of the things that I love to do with these folks, and I, I learned this from Carol Forgash, so another person that we're calling out to, um, where she created a safe house. So when I'm doing this work with every part, we build a house, and each, each part gets their own room. Each room, they get to decorate, and they get to decide age-appropriate things that go in there, whether it's movies or toys. The living room is filled with age-appropriate movies, toys, couch, lots of pillows. Every part of it gets to be decided. And the caregivers are people who are, if if they had people in their lives who were good enough caregivers, or maybe it's Mary Poppins or whatever character, fictional character might be in, or the, the neighbor mom who was such a good mom, whatever, that that becomes the caregiver in the house. And that safe house can be so helpful. For example, if I have a client who um, sexually abused from very early on, and when she had sex with her husband, her young parts would show up and freak out because kids shouldn't be having sex. So we had it. So every time she and her husband wanted to have sex, her kids would go to the safe house, hang out there, put on headphones, watch a movie. We're not involved. Um, and we've had uh, parts who, you know, kid parts should not go to work. They should be playing. So we often have kid parts hang out at the house all day, playing outside. So the adult part gets to go to work. So no, again, another very useful thing you can do to help create more stability and safety for the whole system. And I also want to point out that most everything we've been talking about so far is actually prior to working through the traumatic experiences. We're creating a stabilization before we do the desensitization or working through the trauma. You know, normally there are three phases of work with dissociative disorders, symptom reduction, stabilization, in EMDR work, we would call that phase one and phase two. There's working through the trauma or reprocessing phase three through seven. And then at the end, the reevaluation, we also have to do reconnection and a reintegration because these patients have utilized association so uh, extremely that they often lack other coping skills. And it's in this part of post-trauma work that, you know, I will utilize things like DBT and other kinds of seeking safety and other kinds of coping skills to help the patients learn and develop their abilities to cope without only relying upon dissociation. There's another 
very common um, myth about dissociation that I'm going to invite Kurt to talk about. There is a lot of thought that if I keep my client with with his or her, their eyes open, they won't dissociate. Kurt, what do you want to say about that? Good luck with that. (laughs) Uh, I've heard it over the years. I've been working with dissociative disorders for 42 years. And the bottom line is they'll dissociate with eyes open or closed if they need to. Uh, it's a, it's a defense mechanism. And, you know, we can try to limit and, and work with them. But the bottom line is uh, these patients dissociate so extremely because they've needed to to survive. The trauma that they experience often started very early in life, often in infancy. And there's histories of physical abuse, neglect, abandonment, sexual abuse within families and outside family members, Uh, being threatened with death if they tell anyone, being threatened that they would, someone else in their family would die if they told anyone. And this has totally disrupted their developmental phases. So you're looking at dissociative disorders and attachment issues. You can't avoid the attachment issues. And they will dissociate. The important things is to be aware that that dissociation may be part of the memory network. Don't be afraid of it. And just to give you, uh, I'm going to make the assumption that most people listening are in that normal realm of dissociation. I understand that I may be incorrect about that, but but you know we talk about the the normal dissociation, that idea of driving someplace and not remembering how you got there, not even noticing you were driving. I am going to make another assumption that while you were driving, your eyes were open, and yet you weren't totally present. So our clients who have much more extreme trauma and have needed to use this wonderfully, at the time, adaptive way of dealing can definitely keep their eyes open, do have conversations, go to work, take care of their kids, whatever. And they're not present with you. All right. That's right. Um, so something else that I don't think we talked about last time, Kurt. Did we talk about the behind the head scale last time? No, we did not. Oh, let's talk about it now. This is Jim Knipe's yeah. work, K-N-I-P-E, a book that I would absolutely say if you're dealing with this population, and you are, that I would say is required is Jim Knipe's toolbox, EMDR toolbox. It's amazing. He came out with a second edition Oh, gosh, maybe a year ago now. Um, Around 2018, I think. The second edition? Yeah, I think so. Wow, time flies, doesn't it? Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, definitely you have to get it. It's just phenomenal. But one of the things he does to kind of like a really quick in the middle of the session to see if your client is present with you or not, because remember these people are really good at this and that you may miss it, is kind of a measurement of how present they are with you. So I'm going to describe it to you because you can't see me, but imagine your hand straight out in front of you, your arm straight out in front of you. And if your client is using this as the measurement, their hand straight out in front, that they're 100% present with you. Now, if their hand is all the way back, like by their ear, sitting on their shoulder, they're 100% gone. My terminology is they've left the building, right? Body there, but they've left the building. And using that as a measurement for their hand to go up a little bit, up a little bit more, halfway up, all the way to the ear, how present are they with you? 
And pretty much, if they're at a 50% or more present, you can keep on doing reprocessing. 50% more gone, then they're too far gone. You, you need to stop getting more grounded in the here and now. But I teach this to my clients during phase two preparation. So if in the middle of reprocessing, if I look at them and I'm not sure they're here with me, or if they recognize it and they tell me, I just stop and go, where are you right now? And I put my arm back and forth as that measurement, and they kind of stop and they go, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm too far gone, right? I'm too far back. I'm glad you brought that up because the way I learned about this happened many, many years ago before Jim's book. I was working with a DID in session, and we, she was there in front of me talking to me. And all of a sudden, her eyes get kind of focused, and she says in an almost childlike voice, you're so small. And what I began to learn from her, and by the way, I've learned how to help DID patients by listening to them. What I learned from her is exactly this back of the head phenomena. We call it telescopic vision. It's like you have a telescope. And when you look through one end, it makes things bigger. But if you reverse it and look through the other end, things look smaller, farther away. They're diminished in size. And what she described to me was how I looked with the telescope reverse. She was very, very back, far back in her head. And she looked at me like a, through a long tunnel, and I looked small to her because that was the cue that she was moving into that dissociative place for protection. I have to say that when you said that, that you looked very small to her, I kind of laughed because if you don't know Kurt, he's actually very tall. So... I just had to laugh about that. But anyway, putting that aside, um, we don't have a ton of time left. And I want to talk about some resources uh, as you move into doing this work or doing it now, because you are doing this work now. Um, we've mentioned some uh, people that we really like, and we have uh, think that their books and their workshops are really good, whether it's Sandra Paulson, um, Jim Knipe's no longer doing workshops, but he has his book, Carol Forgash. Um, ISTD, International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, uh, Colin Ross. Who else? Yes. That's, those are my big ones right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other, the other place you might want to go visit is EMDR Professional Training, our organization. We have several really interesting workshops, uh, on-demand workshops about dissociation. Uh, Kurt has one, I think it's 10 hours, kind of an introduction to dissociation. We have one by, um, oh, goodness, I'm blanking on his name. Andrew Schubert. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Um, that's another 10, 12-hour workshop on dissociation, working with parts. So there's several things that we have up, and we'll be adding to it. Um, but you you got to educate yourself. You just got to. All right, Kurt, anything else you can think of that we should say really fast? Well, other than thank you for joining us again for another podcast. Until next time. Over and out. Thank you. How about you, Michelle? Thank you. Oh, one, I do want to say one last thing. Two last things. One, if you want to get in touch with us, go to our website, emdrprofessionaltraining.com. And the other is if there's a topic you want Kurt and I to talk about, please email us. The email is on the website. We'd love to hear what you'd like to know. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.